Businesses of all sizes have been affected by COVID-19. In response to this, Postmedia Solutions has created a five-step guide aimed to help you adapt your business during this global crisis. To get this free guide, visit postmediasolutions.com adapt. In tumultuous times like these, between the pandemic and the protests and the recession, Canadians look to the Bank of Canada to steer the economy straight. And as of today, there will be a new leader at the helm of the bank. I'm Emily Jackson, and you're listening to Down to Business. This week, we're joined by Financial Post columnist Kevin Carmichael to discuss the legacy of outgoing Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Polaz, the decision to replace him with Tiff Macklem, what the bank needs to focus on going forward, and why leadership at the bank is so critical to the Canadian economy. Why is the leadership at the Bank of Canada so important during uncertain times like these? We've got a pandemic, we've got protests, we've got a lot going on. Why is the leadership something we need to pay attention to? Well, I think the crisis is um, is a reminder, right, about why uh, you do need um, excellent uh, leadership at the central bank. I think it comes down to maybe two reasons. One is sort of revolves around confidence. Central bank leaders are sort of the um, the front line, I guess, in calming down financial markets, the investing community. Um, for whatever reason, you'll see markets respond well to a central banker that they trust. Maybe the best example was back through uh, in, during the the previous uh, crisis. You know, the whatever it takes moment, uh, where Mario Draghi, the uh, European Central Bank uh, president, uh, came out in 2012 and essentially stated that uh, he was prepared to unleash whatever policy uh, was necessary to calm down the, the sovereign debt crisis that was uh, raging in Europe at that time. Uh, you know, your listeners will remember that there were lots of worries that countries like Greece and uh, Spain and others were going to go bankrupt. Uh, those words from he really calmed things down uh, almost immediately. He did, of course, have to follow those words up with policy at some point, and that gets to the second uh, theme about why I think it's uh, important that you do have good leadership at central banks. I mean, you do need to get the policy right. I mean, we saw during the the previous crisis, uh, you know, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, where you know there really was um, there was hesitancy on the part of the central banks. The the response was inconsistent, so we sort of we had this sort of herky jerky uh, two or three years where markets were up, markets were down, recovery was happening, the recovery wasn't. That had a lot to do with um, just, I guess, hesitancy by the by the some, some major central banks just to, to go after the crisis hard. And so we've seen the flip side of that this time, where the central banks, uh, including the Bank of Canada under uh, Governor Polos, have uh, wasted no time in throwing almost everything they have at the crisis, understanding that that in moments like these, there is no point of of holding back. the The idea is to to calm markets down, restore confidence, and you do that by overwhelming the situation. And uh, you know, we saw that in Canada. We certainly have seen it uh, in the U.S. around uh, all the things the Federal Reserve has been doing, and uh, really around the world this time, which I think is probably the biggest reason that you've seen the financial markets recover as quickly as they have have from, uh, from those catastrophic falls of, of sort of in the February, March uh, period. And, and that's a big difference from, from a decade ago where, you know, so that market uncertainty lingered for a long time, kind of held the recovery back uh, because that confidence really never took hold. So this time, central banks went at the situation really hard. And while there's still lots of uncertainty, obviously, about where we're headed from here, at least the financial markets, superficially at least, are not, uh, are not a drag on the recovery this time. It's almost like they learned the lessons from 2008, 2009 and applied it to the current pandemic. 
pandemic. Now, obviously, Stephen Polaz is the leader at the Bank of Canada right now, his last day June 2nd, after a seven-year term. Now, tell me a bit about him. Who is Stephen Polaz and what was the perception of him when he got the job in 2013, sort of at the tail end of that particular crisis? Sure. Well, Steve Polaz is sort of an interesting story. I mean, it's like a, it's a dream come true story, really. I mean, it's a wonky dream come true story, I suppose, uh, since we're talking about central banks. But he's a kid from Oshawa, Ontario, blue collar town who got hooked on uh, economics when he was, uh, you know, studying his or doing his undergrad at Queens and decided pretty much then and there that he uh, he wanted to be Bank of Canada governor one day. You know, there's he's only the ninth Bank of Canada governor. So, it's, you know, it's not a it's not an easy shot to hit. But but um, almost four decades later, he figured out how to do it or he managed to, to get himself in that position. So in that way, it's kind of a, it's a nice story um, on, on that level. Look, he along the way, he's just he's a, uh, established himself as just an extremely good and smart economist uh, with a knack for taking very abstract concepts uh, um, and describing it in ways that uh, allowed, uh, you know, non-economists to, to get a get better grasp of the sorts of things that he was talking about and so this was a this is a really strong economist uh, went to the bank in the 80s rose to the ranks fairly quickly he was running the research shop by the by the mid 90s which is when he uh, decided he had to leave a mentor told him that he really needed to uh, if he wanted to be governor one day he would benefit a lot from uh, getting some outside experience and when I talked to him sort of the the exit interview we did a week or so ago before uh, before his departure he said that was a tough moment for him he described it as a as a divorce so I, I mean I share that simply to describe um, just how much this guy loved the idea of, of being at the Bank of Canada and, and making it uh, making it to the top, being governor. So uh, he, he loved the institution. And it, and it sounds like his style was, his, he's obviously a smart guy, but his ability to communicate it was really effective. How did that impact, you know, how he dealt with some of the biggest issues during his time of governor, the housing bubble that has yet to come, the oil crash in Alberta in 2015? How, how did he help establish that trust that was needed between the bank and the markets? That's a that's a complicated question. It shouldn't be. Uh, I'll give you two answers. I think ultimately he was successful in establishing trust with the broader public because he made a conscious effort to do what I just mentioned. He was uh, one of the, like he, one of the things he strived to do. One of the things he was good at as he, as he rose through the ranks. He was he he took that ability to uh, crystallize difficult economic concepts in ways that most people could could understand. And I think uh, he he brought that approach and he really changed the way the Bank of Canada communicated. It got away from using sort of uh, economics jargon and central banking code and just started talking about talking about policy, talking about the economy, just in a way, you know, you and I would if we were um, sitting on a patio having a drink. And I think uh, this worked well for him after a while. I think it, it really uh, created a relationship between the public and the central bank that didn't exist when he took over the job. Now, in doing so, he did alienate a specific constituency of the central bank. And that is, of course, the financial markets, which had gotten used to having this sort of special relationship with the Bank of Canada and, and most central banks, frankly, but we'll, we'll stick to the Bank of Canada. And so the markets um, and, you know, they, so the traders, the, the the economists and analysts that advise the, the, the traders and investors, they they gotten used to being talked to a certain way. They got used to understanding the code and the jargon that came out of the central bank.
like. And so when this guy comes along who no longer does any of that, who speaks in a different language and a language that's more accessible to more people, there was some upset on Bay Street because that group of people and an influential group of people, of course, they're moving money around, have a lot of access to the business press, that sort of thing. They, they you know, and they weren't shy about expressing their discomfort with, uh, with Polos' approach. There was a group of people there and still quite, haven't quite got over what Polos has done, haven't quite forgiven him for, for embarking on a communication strategy that they've continue to say is, is confusing. And the reason they say is confusing is because there's no longer a, um, a Bank of Canada governor there who's telling them exactly what to do. And that was a big difference when, when uh, Mark Carney was running the bank and certainly the, the history of the, of, of the bank before Carney was more of a, a tendency of the, the central bank and its leader to, to guide the markets along, sort of like take them by the hand and, and show them where, where policy is headed. Polos didn't think that was healthy. Um, he wanted to see a two-way relationship between the markets and the central bank, not a one-way relationship. He broke that down. I think it'll be healthier in the long run that that's happened, uh, presuming the, the next governor sticks to, sticks to that path, but it certainly upset some people uh, during his tenure. Why do you think that will be a healthier strategy? It comes down to one thing. So one of the reasons I think that the financial crisis happened is there just wasn't enough sort of risk built into um, into decision making on Wall Street and Bay Street and in fi- financial markets generally. And one of the reasons that was so is because it was so easy to to see where the central bank policy was headed. Uh, the Fed uh, in particular was very nervous about upsetting financial markets, uh, seemed to adopt uh, the mentality that its job was to to bring some stability to the markets on a basically a day-to-day basis so it was very wary of doing anything that uh, that would upset uh, that stability but what that created over a number of years is this one-way bet essentially that if you decided that you knew where interest rates were headed then you know you could you, you didn't have to think as much about where you're placing your money you didn't have to take as risk uh, or make risk as a big a consideration as you probably should have so this is something that Polo has wanted to correct it bothered him to see that while he was outside of the central bank, he was seeing this going on and he, he, he didn't like it. And he didn't uh, accept that on one hand that the, that the central bankers themselves could be as confident as they were projecting themselves to be, uh, be as certain about the path of interest rates as, as they were letting on. And then he realized that um, one of the great things about markets for a policymaker is that they are a source of information. But if, um, if trading is based around what uh, the central banks are saying, then you're not actually learning anything from from that market conversation, right? If, if everybody's trading around what they think the central bank is going to do, the central bank isn't learning anything about what's actually going on in the economy. So Polos wanted to correct that. And I think he's been somewhat successful at doing it. And, uh, you know, I think we should uh, we should hope that, uh, that the guy who comes next will, will keep that uh, keep that going. Now, when it comes to Polaz, some of the interest rate decisions over his term, are there any that really stick out Stick out to you as critical moments that helped keep the ship steady here in Canada? Probably his best moment. Uh, the one he'll be remembered for is, um, is January 2015. That's when he, he cut interest rates after watching for a, a, a span of about, what, uh, six weeks or so, just watching the, the oil prices uh collapse uh, sort of t- through the end of 2014 and the early part of uh, 2015. And that's significant for a couple of reasons. The biggest probably is that that no one had uh, had pivoted at that at that stage. So almost no one saw this coming. The Bay Street forecasts were still sort of 
predicting, you know, decent, uh, decent economic growth at that time. They had not sort of absorbed the effect of a, of a, a collapse in oil prices of that magnitude would have on the Canadian economy. To Stephen Polos's credit and his, to the credit of his deputies and, and, and other advisors at the bank, by that point, uh, Polos had uh, had asked the asked the staff to to put a lot of effort into into updating the the models that they used. You know, because of course the the economic forecasting community came out of the financial crisis uh, bruised and beaten up. Uh, no one saw it coming. Polos was down on on the bank's modeling when he took over, and he you know there's one of the things that uh, the people don't talk about a lot, but he did spend some time in the early years uh, working on those models, making them more responsive to what was going on in the real economy. So they came back after Christmas. So early in 2015, those those revamped models were saying that you know the collapse of the oil prices was going to be bad news for Canada. Polos, who had a, a longish history um, spending time because of his time at, as president of uh, Export Development Canada, had a, a lot of contacts in the in the oil patch in the Canadian business community. Called around, realized that the big oil companies were were in bad shape, were cutting back on capital investment, that sort of thing. And so even though the the market perception hadn't shifted, you know, he decided to you know along with his advisors, but ultimately he decided to cut rates at that point, even though the markets weren't expecting it. That took a bit of guts because, um, you know, central banks didn't like to upset uh, markets. Um, but Polos took a risk that you could actually upset markets and uh, and get them to where you, you needed to go. And, um, you know, it turns out it was prescient. I mean, he took some heat at the time, but, you know, they, we, in 2015, Canada barely avoided a, a recession as it was. So, you know, employ a counterfactual. And if the Bank of Canada had waited uh, for the market consensus to come around, you might argue that rather than, you know, having a mild recession or just a, a, a bout of stagnation, that it might have actually been a more significant recess, recession if the, the central bank had not built a little bit of cushion into the system early. So I think that stands out as probably his, uh, his best moment as a policymaker. I mean, between that and the reaction to coronavirus, it seems that the lesson is act quickly instead of waiting as long as they did in 2008, 2009. What will Polaz's legacy be? That's a, a difficult question um, in in some ways because Polos is a very nuanced guy. So it's it, you know it, I, I, it's going to sound a bit disparaging. I don't mean it to, but but Mark Carney, for example, or or Mario Draghi, or some of these uh, famous. Uh, central bankers from the crisis. They're almost like cartoon figures. They're, they're, were, they took on this sort of this larger than life persona and they were superheroes. And so it's easier to define um, their legacy than it is to define a legacy of a, of a policymaker like Polos, who is really more subtle, more nuanced. But I will say a couple of things. I think, I think his legacy is, is will be defined by one, the, you know, that decision of 2015 to to go against uh, market consensus and actually lead the markets instead of uh, sort of wait for the markets to to lead him. So that you know that was a that's a, an obvious uh, benefit to the Canadian economy. There, you could pair the response to COVID. I think, although that's that's a, a, a story that has yet to be written. But um, cross your fingers if you know the the best case scenario comes to pass. It looks like the response that Polos led uh, in March and April is is probably the right one. And and uh, as you said, evidence that he absorbed the lessons of the financial crisis and, and applied them here and um, and hopefully applied them correctly. So so that would be part of his legacy. And I think the other part is just 
some of the subtle changes he made to the way the Bank of Canada conducts policy to decides the way it goes about deciding how to set interest rates that could be long lasting. We talked a bit about the communications approach that could be important. And the other thing he did was sort of adopt a new frame for thinking about uh, how to set uh, interest rates. When, when he came along, there still was this idea that uh, basically math reigned supreme, that it was like a, basically a, a mechanistic approach to setting interest rates. You know, you'd plug your numbers in to a model and it would uh, basically tell you where to go. And there was kind of an understanding that that's, that's how it worked. Now, obviously, behind the scenes was probably more nuanced than that, but that was kind of the impression that uh, that was out there. Polos came along and said, look, we, we can't, these, these models are only so good. Even the best models uh, are, are far from perfect. We need to, you know, we need to apply more risk into, into our assessment of where policy is going. So he really took, he, he calls it a risk management approach. And he thinks it's really about uh, taking what the models give you and then running that through um, a stress test, an intellectual stress test, uh, really, of um, what could go wrong and uh, how much weight to apply to to various situations. You know, I'll, I'll try to spit it out quickly. So, an example of that, last year, when every other central bank was, was cutting interest rates, the Bank of Canada held back. And one of the reasons it held back because it decided through this risk management analysis that the benefit of cutting interest rates in 2019 would not pay off or did not counterbalance the potential threat of, you know, cutting interest rates and, and building up uh, or setting off another credit binge and, and putting more upward pressure on the housing bubbles and the, the household debt issues that Canada has been grappling with for, for so long. So that, that's an example of, uh, of Polo's approach to monetary policy. And it's a, it's, it's a significant change from the way things were being done uh, when he uh, came along. With the interest rate scenario and the debt picture in Canada, it's hard not to see an interest rate cut as kind of lighting a lighting a match in, in a sense when mm, we're talking about exactly. our debt levels. Um, okay, so before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about who will succeed Polos and what's next for the bank. So the Trudeau government was choosing between two people, one Tiff Macklem, who got the job, and the other Deputy Bank of Canada Governor Carolyn Wilkins, who would have been the first woman at the helm of the bank. What was your reaction to the decision to choose Macklem over Wilkins? I know it was a bit controversial. It was a bit controversial. It, I don't know if it should have been. I mean, uh, it was controversial because of the way that the selection is made. It's a very opaque process. There's nobody really knows what criteria the government applies to, to choosing its candidate. So you had a situation where Macklem had kind of faded to the background. It wasn't unlike the situation in which, you know, Polos found himself in seven years ago when, when Macklem, in fact, was, was the front runner. Macklem was the front runner because he was the guy at the Bank of Canada at the time. He was out there. He had, you know, a bit of a public profile. So, he naturally became the front runner in the public's eyes, even though there was no real clarity about what was going on behind the scenes. We had a bit of a repeat of that this time where, where Carolyn Wilkins was a senior deputy governor. She was out there. She had established herself as a certain as a, as a as a credible candidate and so everybody just assumed that she was the um, the front runner because there was a, an assumption that that, that Macklem was happy running the Rotman uh, School of Management and had got burned seven years ago so wasn't really interested in, in, in coming back that was an assumption that we all made um, as guilty of it uh, as anybody else but we didn't really know and as it turns out he was 
apparently interested, obviously, right? Since he got the job. So whether he was recruited, whether he threw his name in and didn't bother to tell any of us that he was interested, who knows? But but, uh, anyway, the point is when, when you look at both candidates, both strong candidates, Macklem, because he would have that much more experience than than Wilkins because he was experienced the financial crisis at a slightly higher level probably than Wilkins did. His orbit of contacts might be that much stronger. I think it came down to that at the end of the day. But um, but like I said, the, the opacity of the selection process means that we don't really know and it will allow for a little while at least this sort of uh, certain am- amount of bitterness to exist because, um, because yeah, as, as you alluded to, it was controversial because there was a group of people out there who felt that it was time to to choose a woman and put a woman in this uh, position. And the fact that that didn't happen when you had a very good woman who was, who was clearly ready to do the job creates the impression that the, the patriarchy sort of reared up at the last minute and uh, secured an important job for itself uh, once again. That's unfair to, to Macklem probably, but that's what you get when you, you're running a democracy sort of in the back rooms. Yeah, when you're making those decisions behind closed doors. As Macklem takes the reins here, what do you think needs to be at the top of the bank's agenda? Well, obviously, uh, the, the top of the agenda is, is the crisis, I guess, right? I mean, that's, that's the obvious one, given that we appear to have, have, have tamed it down. But now, you know, there's still obviously lots of uncertainty about where we go from here. Now, there's a possibility that the, the bank has, has done almost all that it can, uh, certainly probably has done all it can at this stage, given that it's really unlike uh, 2000, 2008, 2009, really the, the central banks can only play a supplementary role here. What, what they can do is keep uh, financial markets calm, uh, keep interest rates stable. The Bank of Canada has uh, you know, deployed about um, what I did the math before we got on the phone, Emily. I think it's uh, its balance sheet is up to now, what, almost $400 billion in, in assets on the Bank of Canada's balance sheet now compared with like $120 billion in early March. So that just shows you the scale of, of what the Bank of Canada has been doing. But it also tells you there's, there's not much more it can do at this stage. Like it's it's kind of, it's emptied the armory essentially. So the job for, for Macklem will be managing uh, what Polos has put in motion and uh, determining at some point whether there is in fact a role for the Bank of Canada to play in, in offering up some stimulus. Perhaps at some point uh, that will be a possibility, but there's not a lot of stimulus that the Bank of Canada can provide at this point. I would say the second thing that uh, Macklem will have to do though is, is just keep a, a very close eye on what his policy actions uh, or the Bank of Canada's policy actions are, are doing just the way markets and the economy functions, uh, given the fact that we're piling up all this debt at this stage. I mean, that, that will have... That will set forces in motion that uh, that we haven't seen for a long time. Whether they be inflationary, whether they be you know putting more upward pressure on various housing markets or this, this sort of thing, it's it's hard to stay at, at this stage. So the Bank of Canada is going to have to be, I think, stay on top of what's going on there and, and perhaps take a more aggressive public role than it, than it may have. Ha- may have in the past and that it has the intellectual horsepower and the confidence of, of the larger public to come out and, you know, keep the record straight about what's happening out there in the economy. And I think that will be um, an, uh, an important role for, for Macklem, certainly over, you know, the first uh, two or three years of his mandate. Well, absolutely. I mean, dealing now not only with household and consumer debt, but with the massive debts we've incurred during this pandemic. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Of course, Emily, anytime. 
That was Kevin Carmichael, Financial Post columnist. You can read his exit interview with Polaz at financialpost.com. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to this week's episode of Down to Business. And thank you to our team, music and production by Bryce Hall, editing by Yadula Hussain, and web support by Pamela Heaven. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Emily Jackson, and until next week, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com. 